There isn't a single regime in the world exempt from at least pretending to follow some sort of law or legal procedure, no matter how arbitrary or absurd. The ability to remain in power depends on some semblance of legitimacy to keep resistance at bay. And so, since Putin came to power, the Kremlin has gradually rebuilt an edifice of laws upholding a Soviet-style system of repression to intimidate the wider public into submission. Cracking down on political participation, human rights work, media, and the internet. The Kremlin has used terms like undesirables, foreign agents, or extremists to shut down media outlets and civil society groups, even environmental ones, and imprison essentially anyone involved in activism or expressing criticism. And when this formal system fails to contain opponents who become too loud, Putin won't hesitate to go outside the law and even outside Russia through assassination squads. The long list of targets include people like Vladimir Karamurza in 2015 and 2017, opposition leader Boris Nemtsov in Moscow in 2015, anti-corruption campaigner Alexei Navalny in Siberia in 2020, former Russian military officer Sergei Skripal in Salisbury, England in 2018, Putin critic Alexander Litvinenko in London in 2006, and on and on. We know that it, there's been a very high mortality rate in the last several years among the people who have crossed the path of Vladimir Putin's Kremlin. This is Vladimir in the 2017 Frontline interview. Independent journalists, uh, anti-corruption campaigners, opposition activists, opposition leaders. Many people have died. Some in strange and unexplained deaths, others in just straight-out assassinations. Uh, and the assassination of Boris Nemtsov was the most brazen, the most high-profile political assassination in modern Russia. And the political responsibility for this lies squarely with Vladimir Putin and his regime. When the leader of the opposition is assassinated in the shadow of the Kremlin, just 200 yards from a Kremlin wall, in what is probably the most well-guarded and secure location, not just in Moscow, but probably in the whole of Europe, the political responsibility for this lies with the regime. This episode is about how the Putin regime has used its war of aggression in Ukraine to increase its grip on power and control over the public at home, undergoing the fateful shift from an authoritarian to a totalitarian system. We'll take you behind the closed doors of Vladimir Karamurza's sham trial to uncover the lengths the regime will go to turn a peaceful opposition and anti-war activist into the gravest enemy of the state. I'm your host, Yona Diamond, from the Raul Wallenberg Center for Human Rights, and this is The Price of Conviction, A Tale of Two Vladimirs, Episode 2, The Trial. Throughout Putin's rule, the Kremlin has continuously expanded its web of repressive laws at home, particularly tightening the screws after mass protests. It's a public outpouring on a scale that's not been seen in Russia for two decades. Anti-Putin demonstrators of all ages came together to strike at the heart of power. As in 2012, in response to fraudulent elections returning Putin to power, the 2017 anti-corruption protests, and most starkly following the full-scale invasion of Ukraine. In fact, the regime's insecurity and fear of mass protests tracks with its flurry of changes to the criminal code at each of these points. Following the invasion last year, the Kremlin added a record number of offenses. 
preceded by record numbers in 2017 and 2012. But the full-scale invasion ushered in unprecedented levels of repression, censorship, and propaganda to modern Russia, quickly sliding into totalitarianism. Protests tonight across Russia, in more than 50 cities, according to an NGO. Vladimir Putin unbowed. According to OVD Info, a Russian human rights monitoring group, around 20,000 Russians have been detained for taking public anti-war stances. New patriotic, militarized courses were introduced at every educational level to indoctrinate children. The father of a 13-year-old was sentenced to two years in prison after she drew a Ukrainian flag and a message of no to war for a school exercise. A 10-year-old was brought in for questioning by the police for using a Ukrainian flag as a profile picture. The regime has massively expanded its use of sophisticated technology to track its citizens for any opposition to the war, including activity on encrypted apps like WhatsApp and Signal. Even private conversations critical of the war are not immune, landing people in prison now and returning to a Soviet system of informants in the most intimate spaces. The prospects for mass resistance can appear even bleaker when one considers about one million Russians have fled the country since the war. The regime stamped out virtually all independent media and blocked thousands of websites, including social media platforms like Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, and passed a series of dystopian laws to ban media outlets and criminalize information that deviates from the Kremlin's line. In particular, the Kremlin introduced three new offenses, calling for sanctions against Russia and spreading, quote, false information or discrediting the army. Under the false information law, the Kremlin criminalized and banned media from calling the war a war, carrying up to 15 years in prison, or for reporting anything other than the Kremlin's propaganda. Of course, 10 months into his failed invasion, Putin himself called it a war. The way in which the authorities brought charges against Vladimir demonstrates just how bizarre and disorganized the regime's attempt to keep up this legal charade is. They initially held him for 15 days for, quote, changing the trajectory of his movement in front of his home while cooking up other charges. For us, it was clear that it's just the beginning, just the start of his problems. This is Vladimir's lawyer, Vadim Prokhorov who in April this year had to flee Russia after getting a tip that the authorities were planning to lay charges against him. But as soon as the officers brought Vladimir to the detention center, they were quick to drop the formalities, informing the staff, quote, here's a political for you. They should have called you from headquarters. And while in administrative detention, the authorities added the spreading false information charge against Vladimir for a speech he gave at the Arizona House of Representatives the month before. That speech was nothing out of the ordinary for Vladimir. He spoke out against the regime's corruption and repression about the importance of targeting oligarchs with Magnitsky sanctions and the risks the opposition movement faces. And of course, Vladimir described the war accurately as... To the war of aggression, and this is a legal term from the Nuremberg Statutes, which I'm using deliberately, the war of aggression that Vladimir Putin's regime has unleashed against the nation of Ukraine. He also warned about the dangers of appeasement that led us here. I'm not only a politician, but I'm also a historian by education. And uh, one thing we definitely know from history uh, is how appeasement of dictators ends. It always ends the same way. And so I so wish we had been wrong on this, but today the whole world sees what the Putin regime 
is doing to Ukraine, the cluster bombs on residential areas, the bombings of maternity wards and hospitals and schools, the war crimes. These are war crimes that are being committed by the dictatorial regime in the Kremlin uh, against a nation uh, in the middle of Europe. And this is unfortunately where all the years uh, of the Putin rule have led us. Cluster bombs on residential areas, the bombing of maternity wards, hospitals and schools. These were not only the basic facts of the war, but the very tactics with which the Russian army has waged it from the start, maximizing civilian death and suffering, targeting densely populated areas and critical civilian infrastructure. And this speech was only delivered weeks into the war, before we all witnessed the massacres in Bucha and elsewhere. Indisputable truths implicating Russia's top brass that can't be concealed by any temporary domestic law. But Vladimir also spoke of the often overlooked part of the story, of resistance within Russia. I also want to speak about the other side of Russia uh, to you, because, you know, very often people in the West only see the official side. They see Putin, they see the repression, they see the aggressive actions, they see the war that is now happening. And the other side is very often lost. And the other side, of course, is that there are millions of people in my country who fundamentally reject and fundamentally disagree with everything that the Putin regime stands for and represents, from the kleptocracy and the theory to the abuses and the repressions and the crimes against humanity that are being committed. For the past three weeks, since the war against Ukraine has been started, thousands of Russians have been going onto the streets literally every single day to protest against what is happening, to protest against this crime that is being done, supposedly in our name. As months went by in pretrial detention, the Kremlin started to pile on more charges, as it does to prolong prison terms against high-profile activists. In July, they charged Vladimir with, quote, organizing the activities of an undesirable organization, citing his connection to the Free Russia Foundation dedicated to democracy in Russia. The Kremlin has used the undesirable label to shut down independent media outlets and human rights organizations, and anyone remotely connected faces up to six years in prison. In the past, Vladimir was also cited in relation to his involvement with another pro-democracy group deemed undesirable by the Kremlin called Open Russia. Anastasia Shevchenko, a friend of Vladimir's and fellow activist, was the first Russian prosecuted under the undesirable law for her involvement with Open Russia including participating in educational events and demonstrations. She's now living in exile in Lithuania and on Russia's wanted list as a, quote, threat to the country's defense forces. In 2020, when I first began collecting interviews for a podcast on political prisoners, I had the chance to interview Vladimir when Anastasia was on house arrest at the time, where we discussed the undesirable law, foreshadowing what Vladimir may have already seen waiting in store for him. You know, there was an article in the Soviet-era criminal code, Article 70. Uh, it had been Article 58 under Stalin, but Article 70 in later years, uh, that provided for imprisonment for anti-Soviet agitation and propaganda, a purely political article that would be used by the regime against uh, dissenters and human rights activists. Well, uh, the article of the criminal code, number 284.1, which is the article on undesirable organizations, um, is basically exactly the same thing. It provides for imprisonment for people who are associated with political organizations whom the Putin regime considers undesirable. So for the first time since the end of Soviet rule, 
we once again now have a provision in the Russian criminal code that basically criminally targets people for their political beliefs. Vladimir also described his involvement with Open Russia, building up the movement in the country, one of the many roles he's had over the years. Although this interview was recorded in 2020, before the group officially closed down in 2021 to protect its members from facing prison time. In 2014, that same year, um, I became the national coordinator of the Open Russia movement uh, in Russia. Um, One of our main tasks at the beginning was to kind of try to create a network of um, regional affiliates. So uh, I extensively traveled all over Russia, you know, going everywhere from Kaliningrad to Irkutsk uh, to meet with people, to, you know, hold public events and create discussion opportunities and roundtables and film screenings and so on and so forth to kind of try to recreate that space for open and unfettered public discussion that has been squeezed and, and, and almost shut down by the Putin regime. Um, and eventually, with time, um, Open Russia transformed into a fully-fledged national pro-democracy movement, which it is today. Um, I was later elected vice chairman uh, of Open Russia. Um, I left last summer, in the summer of 2019. According to Anastasia, the reason Open Russia fell into the Kremlin's crosshairs as the first undesirable organization targeted domestically can be explained by something as simple as Putin's thin-skinned vulnerability. You know what? I think that this uh, political rally that we organized uh, enough of Putin, this protest against him personally, that was a trigger to um, claim the movement undesirable. That time it was unexplicable. How can how can people in their own country become undesirable like at once? I think that Putin is very sensitive in in everything that uh, is uh, personal about him. I remember I was detained uh, on his birthday at four in the morning, going out of taxi because I wanted to plaster a poster saying uh, "Happy Retirement." It was his sixty uh, fifth birthday. And um, they were following me all day. And I know when it is his birthday, they are following all the activists, just not to say anything bad about him. That's why now I have an extreme desire to, <laughs> to, to organize protests like fuck Putin and so on, because he's very sensitive about uh, about himself, actually, because he he sees himself as a tsar, as um, a great, great person in history. And when you start laughing at him on saying that he's old or we are tired of him, so it, it is a trigger every time. And Putin seems to even actively invite this kind of ridicule by comparing himself to an imperialist Russian tsar from the late 17th, early 18th century. President Putin is doing some chest pumping over his invasion of Ukraine. On Thursday, he compared himself to Peter the Great, Russian emperor. This is Natalia Arno, another friend of Vladimir's and president of the Free Russia Foundation, the other undesirable organization cited in his case, who proudly recalls the day her organization was blacklisted when they hosted an event on countering the Kremlin's disinformation. 
that was a very big event in The Hague, which also was very, very symbolic for us <laughs> to, to conduct it in The Hague. The Hague being the site of the International Criminal Court, which issued an arrest warrant against Putin in March of this year for war crimes in Ukraine. And uh, so this is, uh, as soon as our conference was over, we uh, received this news about the uh, designation of uh, an undesirable status. It's uh, on the one hand, a badge of honor, a huge badge of honor. We became organization number 16 on that list, uh, which is now even not in the middle of the list. <laughs> we are now like, it's we're actually the top of the list because so many more organizations, very, very well-respected organizations were later added to that list. And if the early undesirable label was a badge of honor, Natalia can also add a potential poisoning as recognition of her impact, which is now under investigation. In early May of this year, after attending a conference in Berlin organized by the prominent Putin critic Mikhail Khodorkovsky, she flew to Prague where she returned to hotel room to find the door ajar and a strange smell like cheap perfume within. She woke up at 5 a.m. suffering sharp pain, numbness, and strange symptoms. When I reached out to check in, she told me she's feeling much better, just having some lingering neuropathy symptoms, adding that it's unfortunately our norm. And in 2019, with the undesirable label, it became increasingly too risky for the Free Russia Foundation to work with people inside Russia, including Vladimir. It became harder for us to work um, inside Russia. Um, and we had to think about the safety of our partners, of our beneficiaries. And so when Vladimir was set to become the vice president of the organization, Natalia warned him of the dangers given his frequent trips to Russia. I actually asked him, I said, like, it's very dangerous for you now when we are um, designated as undesirable. Maybe, like, uh, let's not do that. Maybe you can do something else. Like, But he was very adamant. He said, no, this is my country. I believe in it. I really don't care about any labels. Uh, free Russia should be free. Russia should, Russia should be free. <laughs> this is like our main uh, uh, goal. Um, so actually, our main goal is not to have this Free Russia Foundation any longer because it's not needed because Russia is free. It's our goal not to have the program on political prisoners because there are no political prisoners. But eventually, family, friends, and lawyers talked him out of it. And so we started to cooperate with Vladimir. Um, but since he, since the legislation kept uh, becoming more and more repressive with longer terms, his lawyers and uh, his family and I, we, we talked to Vladimir. We said, like, yeah, it's too dangerous. Uh, you are coming back uh, to Russia so often. You are there all the time. You are doing all these pro projects. It's important that you are there. You meet with people, with activists. It's very inspiring. He's such an, like, an inspirational leader. Uh, it's very important that you continue all this work, but it's like really dangerous. So in last year, uh, in, in August of 2021, uh, we just, uh, he stopped, he stepped down as vice president of the Russian Foundation, but we, of course, continued being friends and meeting and talking and discussing um, whenever I needed any advice or anything I could, I knew I could call him, I could, like, ask him um, to speak at our events or to, to advise something or to connect me to some, you know, to people. He, he knows everybody in any country, in any parliament, in any MFA, everywhere. And then in October of last year, Vladimir was charged with high treason, again, simply for words that were too much for the Kremlin. Here's Evgenia, Vladimir's wife, explaining the so-called grounds. He's being accused of treason based on three public speeches 
that he made at NATO, at the U.S. Congress, and uh, at the Norwegian Helsinki Committee, where he spoke about uh, the illegitimate character of the um, of the so-called Russian uh, uh, constitutional referendum that basically allowed Vladimir Putin to make himself into a czar. Uh, he also talked about um, the spreading of disinformation in Russian society about um, total grip of, of propaganda uh, over the minds of Russians and the uh, importance to make sure the Russian population has access to independent information. And uh, he talked about uh, mass political repression in Russia. Treason is generally in a class of its own as the most severe crime. Putin himself has called treason, quote, the gravest crime possible. And in most countries, it's reserved for someone who attempts to murder the head of state or go to war against the country, carrying life in prison or the death penalty. Although authoritarian countries are increasingly stretching its use to go after anyone that steps out of line, opposition figures, or even protesters, as in Iran, Cambodia, Saudi Arabia, and others. And for Evgenia, the irony of Putin bringing this charge against her husband is all too clear. The official indictment actually said that Vladimir's activity, Vladimir's uh, work, public speeches, undermined the security of the Russian Federation and undermined the image of the Russian state and Vladimir Putin on the international level. I mean, no one could undermine the image of the Russian state on the international uh, level better than Vladimir Putin himself and the Russian state itself. No one could. When it comes to Vladimir, the absurdity and hypocrisy of the charge was all the more so laid bare to the Russian public after the literal armed rebellion that nearly made it to Moscow just over a week ago. That day, Putin accused Yevgeny Prigozhin, head of the private military Wagner Group, of treason and vowed to harshly punish all conspirators, only to retract the accusation the same day, allowing Prigozhin to run off to Belarus. The authorities closed the investigation into Prigozhin's actual armed rebellion as soon as it began because they found its participants, quote, stopped the actions directly aimed at committing a crime. This was after capturing the southern military headquarters, fighting with the Russian army along the highway to Moscow, and even destroying Russian military aircraft. And meanwhile, Vladimir was sentenced after a sham trial under the same chapter of the criminal code for merely speaking the truth about the war in Ukraine. And Natalia noticed something peculiar in that her organization, the Free Russia Foundation, was cited under the treason charge, even though the prosecution based the charge on cooperation with, quote, one of the NATO countries through his speeches. I was reading, I couldn't understand the difference. Like, again, it's the same again. It's not, it's like a treason, but the like beneficiaries, Free Russia, but Free Russia is not a country. <laughs> yes. I wish it was a country. <laughs> I, I fight for this to be a Russia country, but it's not yet. It's now just a non-profit organization. <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was very weird charge. And as Evgenia explains, the warped logic behind the treason charge against Vladimir speaks to the lengths that a small group surrounding Putin is willing to go to protect their narrow moneyed and corrupt interests above any concern for the welfare of the Russian people they supposedly serve. The regime in Russia uh, equates its own personal interests of a small clique of murderers and thieves to the interests of the entire country. 
So those things like political repression, propaganda, uh, those things and, and the constitutional referendum that allows these people to stay in power indefinitely, those things serve their purposes and their personal interest. But in their opinions, this contradicts this uh, sort of this is uh, treason against the state, against the country. Mm. Because to them, there is no Russia without Vladimir Putin. There is no Russia without this regime. Russia cannot be different, cannot be a democracy. They uh, believe that they are Russia, basically. And Vladimir, of course, by his entire life, by his uh, work, uh, he opposes all of that. Vladimir's trial was totally conducted behind closed doors, as the prosecution cited some sort of state secrets. But Vadim, as Vladimir's lawyer, was the only independent observer able to attend most of the hearings. There have not been any journalists, any relatives, any supporters in these hearings. Only empty court hall, courtroom, three judges, judge's assistant, prosecutor, me, Vladimir Karomurza at the cage, and the, and the guarder, uh, guardian uh, just near, near him. Nobody else. And the guardians uh, were working uh, across this uh, hall. No, nobody could stay there be, before this door. To add to how tightly controlled the case is, and most painfully to Vladimir, the authorities have even barred him from speaking with his family. Obviously, they would not allow him to speak to me because I'm just as much a traitor as he is. I work for an undesirable organization, the Free Russia Foundation, and I proudly work for that organization. And uh, I've been uh, working with my husband and I continue his work. So on many levels, I'm just as much a traitor as he is. And I know that it's just out of the question for them to allow me to have phone conversations with uh, Vladimir. Um, but the fact that he was denied twice the right to talk to his kids is a different matter. Um, and both times he was given absolutely ridiculous explanations for that. Uh, the first time in December, the official paper said that phone conversations with his children would impede the due legal course uh, in, the, uh, in the criminal case against him. And the second time, the second refusal just two days before the verdict, said that phone conversation he could not have phone conversations with his children because his children were living in the United States. So I think they insinuate that some state secrets could leak this way. I mean, state secrets in a high treason case that is based on five public speeches. Vladimir did not reveal any state secrets in any of these public speeches. He stated the facts. The Russian government is leading an aggressive war against Ukraine. The Russian government is carrying out repression in Russia. The number of political prisoners in Russia is growing. Censorship in the country is absolutely total. The entire um, independent media space has basically been cleansed. Um, so Vladimir stated the facts. 
in every each of these five speeches. So there can be no state secrets that can leak through him talking to his kids, obviously. So this is, this is a psychological torture that they're using against someone, against a person who's very, very, very much misses, missing his family. And um, uh, for someone like Vladimir, who adores his kids, being deprived of the right to not only see them, but to even talk to them for over a year, is, of course, heartbreaking. But after more than a year, Vladimir was finally given 15 minutes to speak with his children, just days after Canada voted to grant him honorary citizenship, demonstrating that the advocacy and solidarity can have an impact. As a lawyer in a Kafkaesque system, Vadim was clear-eyed about how powerless they were to influence the court's predetermined outcome. In fact, there are no acquittals in our legal system at all. Not only on political cases. The percentage of acquittals in Russian legal system, 0.3%. Three cases of 1,000 are acquittals. It, it concerns not only political cases. Political cases is 0.00. Nonetheless, it was important to use this opportunity to share the truth about Russia's crimes in Ukraine in Russian court and so they presented independent reports documenting these atrocities as their evidence. There are a lot of documents. For example, 7th and 8th volumes. It was our evidence. We have attached international documents, documents of UN, UN institutes about the war crimes of Russian military forces in Ukraine. So you were, and, you were presenting we, evidence yeah. showing that what Vladimir was saying in his speeches was in fact true. Absolutely. Absolutely. Under these impossible circumstances, Vadim and Vladimir agreed to turn their efforts beyond the court. Vadim would monitor and expose the sham nature of the trial to the public, even courageously sharing what he witnessed with journalists right after the hearings on the steps of the courthouse. Every, uh, every day of uh, court hearing, after the end, after the finish of court hearing, I've come out to the city court hall or maybe even in even outside the, the building, just near the near the, sta- the stairs of the of the Moscow City Court, and I have told to all of the journalists, all of the diplomats, all of the supporters, practically all of the details of this case. But the strategy didn't go without consequences for Vadim, triggering threats of disbarment and even imprisonment. Vladimir has already lost over fifty pounds in pretrial detention and suffers from polyneuropathy, a direct result of his two poisonings, which can lead to paralysis and is a medical condition on a list under Russian law that would exclude imprisonment. After a year in pretrial detention and some time in solitary confinement, uh, his health is obviously deteriorating. And Vladimir now faces an even more dire situation as he awaits the potentially deadly transfer to a strict regime penal colony to serve out his sentence. Even if for a free person, a polyneuropathy is something that is, uh, um, that is considered a very serious condition and uh, difficult to treat. Um, and I do realize that this goes uh, hand in hand with, the, uh, uh, with this uh, sentence, the 25 year sentence, uh, with the regime trying to portray Vladimir as a traitor, um, 
for the Russian population, you know, use this as a as a propaganda tool. On April 10th of this year, a week before receiving the harshest sentence ever issued against an opposition figure in Vladimir Putin's Russia of 25 years in prison, Vladimir Karamurza delivered closing remarks in court. He observed, to his surprise, how his trial harkened back to the 1930s under Stalin, and how he couldn't help but smile when the judge noted his sentence may be reduced if he expressed remorse. Instead, Vladimir embraced the reasons for his sentence. In his words, quote, I'm in jail for my political views, for speaking out against the war in Ukraine, for many years of struggle against Vladimir Putin's dictatorship, for facilitating the adoption of personal international sanctions under the Magnitsky Act against human rights violators. Not only do I not repent for any of this, I'm proud of it. I'm proud that Boris Nemtsov brought me into politics, and I hope that he's not ashamed of me. I subscribe to every word that I've spoken and every word of which I've been accused by this court. I blame myself for only one thing, that over the years of my political activity, I have not managed to convince enough of my compatriots and enough politicians in the democratic countries of the danger that the current regime in the Kremlin poses for Russia and for the world. Today, this is obvious to everyone, but at a terrible price, the price of war. But I also know that the day will come when the darkness over our country will dissipate. When those who kindled and unleashed this war, rather than those who tried to stop it, will be recognized as criminals. This day will come as inevitably as spring follows even the coldest winter. And then our society will open its eyes and be horrified by what terrible crimes were committed on its behalf. From this realization, from this reflection, the long, difficult, but vital path towards recovery and restoration of Russia, its return to the community of civilized countries, will begin. Even today, even in the darkness surrounding us, even sitting in this cage, I love my country and believe in our people. I believe that we can walk this path. For more information, go to priceofconviction.com. Special thanks to all our guests including Vladimir himself in 2020 before he returned to Moscow, Evgenia Karamurza, Vadim Prokhorov, Anastasia Shevchenko, and Natalia Arno. Tune in to our next episode in the series, Historical Memory. <laughs>